Welcome along to the Wise Men's Here podcast. We are remarkably still doing these England pods. We said we would continue to do them as long as they were in the tournament. There are only three games left in the tournament, semi-finals and a final. And here we are. Craig Clark is with me to talk about that. Good Hello. afternoon, stroke evening, Craig. Yes. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, I'm not too keen on the fact that Sunderland talk started to creep in again. I know. In, in, in the, into the group chat and just into the into the well, mindsets we were talking there, weren't we saying, shall we, shall we do five, ten minutes on Sunderland at the end? We'll bury it at the end. And then people <laughs> don't have to uh, stay around and listen to it if they, if they don't want to, because I'm still enjoying this distraction massively. Personally. It's more than a distraction at this point. It's actually because they're in the semi-final. It's, um, I it, mean, it's a it, legitimate is it, is opportunity, it, isn't it, to is win it, the tournament? Is it a welcomed destruction? What's better than a, What's even better than a welcome destruction? Do you think? Uh, another. It's something that. What, what would it? What's the next? What's beyond destruction? <laughs> it's. It's the. It's something that's there, decided to consume you instead of the thing that normally consumes you, which mm. would obviously be the black hole that is Sunderland. Mm. And this would be a bright light, I guess, of hope and other positive things. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think it's the fact it's so competent as well everything behind yeah. it you feel is yeah. so everything that's gone into this operation behind england at the moment has been thoroughly researched planned um attention to detail has been second and on mm. and it's all coming together in a bit of a perfect storm and i'm not it's weird because you know being a like massive england fan and being so emotionally involved in tournaments on years gone by I don't even feel like I've, you know, I've not really had the drama that we normally have no. <laughs> because it's well, just been yeah. so, you know, they've just executed the game plan in every single Scotland aside, which mm. was a bit of a missed opportunity, we think. And perhaps now you could say the players needed that really to, to, because that was their only, it's been the only black mark. And even then they didn't lose the game. They kept a clean sheet. Well, this is the remarkable thing. It's going back to what you said pre-tournament about sort of hide your weakness by, Playing to your strengths, but <laughs> yeah. uh, it but it is but like this isn't a criticism of that comment. It's just it is remarkable how many clean sheets that England have kept. I mean, nobody would have predicted it. Obviously, the return of Harry Maguire is massive. Um, but the way the team set up, I mean, I don't know how much people buy into the whole XG thing, but England's XG is the lowest of the teams left in it. But the XG against is also the lowest of the teams left in it. So that does suggest. In terms of game plan, yep, yeah, I don't think conservative is necessarily the right word. It's it's robust um, and it protects what, like you said, it was probably perceived as a weakness. But as you as you go further, you start to think. Actually, I look at the back fours or back threes. If you look at the Danes um, that are left in the competition, and England's is arguably the best. Is that I wouldn't say that was that was no, incorrect, would you? So anyone think it's outrageous to say to say that. Um, the, the only thing the, the central midfield area as well they were the two so the central defence and the central midfield areas were the, were the um, su- suggested areas of weakness for England going into the tournament and um, while yes you know Rice and Phillips aren't you know long burst and attacking the midfielders this they you know and, and, and they were always fancy to to do well defensively but they've offered more than that as well and, and they're two that are hmm. coming for particular prayers They've been fantastic. And the, the remarkable thing is, of course, that you see Henderson come off the bench and, yeah, the goal was fantastic. And we all, as Sunderland fans, loved seeing him get that goal. But some of the other stuff he did, there was one ball in particular that he lobbed over the top from the uh, the centre circle and it dropped perfectly in the Ukrainian box. 
I can't remember who picked who who it was the pass to. That wasn't a hopeless, aimless ball forward. That was a deliberately executed ball over the top, and he he didn't have time to really like look up and think about it. It was instinctive, and it reminded you that as good as Rice and Phillips have been, this is an England team playing without its best centre midfielder, mm. and that is incredible that they've been winning games so comprehensively. I would say the only black mark. If you want to talk about it tournament wide, you can call it a black mark or not. Depends how you look at this. Is England's conversion rate? We've got scoring twenty percent of the shots of of gunning our goals. That's double. Italy's is about ten, and I think Spain's and um, <clears throat> Denmark's are about eleven and twelve. Now, you, I think is that unsustainable, or is it because England are playing in such a way that the only chances that they're really creating or the only shots that they're taking or when they've created an opportunity that's really worth having a go. I suppose there's two ways to look the at it. The fall of the players six yards in the box after a well-worked move, aren't they? So, exactly. Yeah. So that's not, you, kind, not... Yeah. But are yeah. they creating enough opportunities where if you have a game where one or two of those don't go in, because four or six on target went in against Ukraine, that's, that's not typical of a, of a football game. But if you have six on, shots on target, you are going to win a game. But in the other games, we haven't had six on target. It's been more like twos and threes. That That's the only area of mild concern. That If you have a game where you only have two or three shots on target and suddenly they don't go in, have they got that little bit more in the tank to adjust it to create two or three more chances, maybe an extra time if need be to win the game? I don't know what you think about that. I think I, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost like the school of Mourinho, isn't it? And like, you know, because mm-hmm. he's, I mean, his, his reputation and his style has evolved over the years where it's got to a point where it's deemed to be really negative. And I don't think England have been that. No, not at all. I agree. When, when okay. he started out, it, 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 from, and, and this is from memory. I haven't gone back and looked over data or anything, mm-hmm. but from memory, his first stint at Chelsea and, and at uh, Inter, they they would give out good hidings to teams, but that was a lot of that was it was always controlled, wasn't it? To the point where you just mm. felt felt like they they're gonna frustrate the opponents to the point where the, their opponents are gonna open out, and as soon as their opponents open out, they're gonna get they're gonna get hit with one, Absolutely. two, three, yeah. four, and that was very much what the the game was like against Ukraine, wasn't it? Because <laughs> um, I don't even think Ukraine had a chance to come out saying that they were just they were pinned back yeah. and they were just shell shocked, weren't they? And, and clearly just it's nice for England's quality to come through because this is what we keep saying right so England have underachieved regardless of how well Southgate's doing and regardless of this the way they've ripped the youth football up and started again and that's worked and started to bring through players like Ford and stuff and that is true as well but England have still always produced world-class players generally the 2010s would be the the, the decade where yeah. you maybe say I'm not so sure, but you know certainly in the, in in the 90s and the noughties, um in in my lifetime, world class players and they they didn't win tournament games. You just expected them to win. They would draw group games mm. against terrible teams, and they would go out on penalties to a terrible Portugal team in 2006, for example. Do you know what I mean? And and it competence is not to be undervalued because we've never oh, been able to do it before. Um, you mentioned earlier the attention to detail. Yeah, it might not be everyone's cup of tea because it isn't necessarily the easiest on the eye. But what it is, is a type of football that negates the opposition's strengths when it needs to. I think they did that really well against Germany. And in negating the opposition's strengths, it was actually playing to England's strengths, as in get Raheem Sterling into the game. He's arguably player of the tournament. If, if England win the tournament, 
I will predict, unless Harry Kane ends up top scorer, I think Sterling's in with a really, really good shout at winning player of the tournament because I think he's been that good. He accelerates England's play. He changes the pace of the game at will, commits players with his dribbling. His movement's a nightmare to deal with. Obviously, Kane, now he's got the one goal and then he's gone on to get another two. I wouldn't fancy being a defence coming up against him in this form. He looks like he's ready to to, to get, you know, another two or three he's goals taken, at this tournament. at the right time, isn't he? Oh, completely. Whereas on the other side of the draw, you look at, not that I think he's peaked at any point in the tournament, but Tiro Immobile is the complete opposite. One, he's not a world-class striker like Kane. Two, he was absolutely horrendous against Belgium. He was awful. He looked totally incapable. The guy who comes on for him for a lot, he doesn't look like a, a top-level striker to me. And then I'm looking around thinking, Morata gets a lot of stick, but to me, he's, he's a better centre-forward than either of those two. And the Danes are actually quite interesting, I would say, up front. Yeah, they've not got any world-class strikers, but I think Yusuf Poulsen and Kasper Dolberg are both probably shown more than either of the strikers, that uh, any of those three strikers. And you can throw um, Moreno into the mix for Spain. I don't think he's looked particularly clever either. And this could be England's first real test defensively where you've got strikers and forward players because Brathwaite's had a good tournament. Obviously, um, Damsgaard's getting a lot of press. He's played well. These are players who are going to cause problems, aren't they? And uh, the left wing back, Myler, he looks really, really handy. He does. And he does look. You would tasty. think that this is it. This is, is if England fall behind. That's the first real test of the yeah. tournament. If it's a big. But if, such though. is such is the preparation that Southgate puts in. What you feel like they would have been briefed about it. They probably talk about mm. it every day because they just seem ready for every scenario. And it's mm-hmm. almost like you know, it's like when we won the the penalty shootout against Colombia in the World Cup. But it was very much like no, we've been working on this process for a while it's not down to look and it's not just practicing penalties at the end of the game there's a mm. process the players are taught to believe in and we've been ready for it now I don't want to jinx that because you know we could go quite easily go out and penalties to somebody but <laughs> since, since Southgate took over we've had two penalty shootouts and won them both is that right because uh, it, it, Swi- sounds... it was Switzerland yeah, in yeah. the Nations League mm-hmm. as well yeah that's so right I, I think don't right, know yeah. we've had another one um, and which you know Henderson missed in the in the World Cup, and I, I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody missed against Switzerland in the Nations League. Um, Doesn't so ring it. it I, not that I remember. scored as well. That's so, right. I remember that. Yeah, that's <laughs> the really, one I remember. really did trust the process. So get yeah, a long-winded point to get back to just saying that you almost feel like they will be prepared to concede a goal and mm-hmm. go a goal down. Like you feel like there will be a clear game plan for that happening. It's well. What one of the things that I thought was quite interesting was England opened as like. 8 to 13 favourites, and they've come in to about 8 to 11. Uh, and Denmark have come in from about like 5 to 1 to 17 to 4. And I, I was talking to my mate about this. I was like, I wonder how well favoured England were against Croatia three years ago. And he pulled this up, and I haven't double checked it, but I'm going to assume he, he was right in what he's pulled up. England were actually even bigger favourites than that against Croatia three years ago, which I found. Absolutely no, remarkable. I, I never really fancied us. I always thought that. I thought I always thought we'd reached the end of the road by that point. I thought, but well, I saw England had a really good chance of beating Croatia. And I just, I'm not suggesting this is the same England as three years ago. I, I don't think it is. It's better, but there it's are. Better. Oh, I agree. But I, I am. I guess what I'm erring on the side of don't underestimate the Danes. And the betting market has kind of adjusted to not underestimating them because I think the initial line was. 
far too heavily in England's favour. I don't know about you. I see England probably winning this game, but maybe by one goal. Um, um, yeah, I, like to the point where I do, I do feel semi-confident, but I don't feel relaxed Likewise. like I did for the the Ukraine game. To the point where, if England lose, I won't be surprised to put it that way. But yeah, because I'm not just, saying. it's a decent Denmark team, and and I, I think you know we'll, we'll come on to this because I think Wembley is going to be crucial for us and. Do you, think it's interesting, do you think it's interesting that, um, do you think there's anything in the fact that the four semi-finalists all played the three group games at home? Well, I'm not sure that it does because Denmark lost their first two. Well, I, I was going to I was gonna throw <laughs> that in Spain, there as well. Because I, yeah. Spain were terrible in Seville and if mm. Spain have only won one game in 90 minutes in the whole tournament. But I guess what you could say with, with Denmark to, yeah, I, I mean, that is right, to be honest. That kind of does blow that three out of the water when... Spain won one, <laughs> Denmark won one. Um, but yeah. I guess what you would say about Denmark, you know, we all know the circumstances of Denmark's first game. Second game, they were just, you know, I, I don't think that would have been a hangover from the first game. Like some were playing, I think just got bit off Belgium, were a decent team. Um, and they were unlucky, actually. I thought they yeah, were a better team. Yeah, yeah, for the, the most part. They quite well. But the third game, there's definitely a case to say the home crowd yeah. played a part in that. They absolutely annihilated Russia and it was bouncing, wasn't it? So. You know, that and might not well, be the same if that was in a random country with no fans there. I think it's more now coming to the point where the travel is really going to start biting. And maybe it has for one or two teams. Like Switzerland have been travelling a lot in the build-up to their quarterfinal. Obviously, Spain are on paper a better team. but And it went and it still took it all the way to the wire and got the penalties. But I do think Denmark having to travel to Baku uh, for a quarter final, which was an absurd, stupid, yeah. really unfair, but it really does benefit England, who only had to go to Rome. Yeah. It's massively benefits England, preparation wise, back at home with a home crowd that's going to be massively supportive. It's not like those group games where people were a bit like, it's boring, myself included, though I wasn't at Wembley, where now it's just like, wow, this is a great opportunity to win a tournament on home soil. And it's also, different, I mean, it's totally different. And Southgate thinks has also said that it was good to get it to get that one game break as well, because almost like you feel mm-hmm. like there would have been a bit of a come down, which I think was probably mm-hmm. possibly going all the way back to Euro '96. I'm sorry, sorry for showing me. I'm just thinking if I listen to a, a radio show in the '90s around Euro '96 and they kept harking back to 1966 all the time, I would have been <laughs> like, I would have like turned it off, thinking, all right, like granddad, you know what I mean? Um, but, the, <laughs> but but that did happen in Euro '96 after the. They beat Scotland and then they stuffed Holland 4-1 and they were a massive high, weren't they? And then they were terrible against Spain in the quarterfinal. That's true. Um, true. Spain had a disallowed goal and a blatant penalty turned down in that game. So I know I'm going back a long way, but what I guess my point is that that can happen because I was on such a high that next day after the Germany game. The the lack of the only real drama, like I say, we haven't really had ups and downs. Muller's miss, you would say, would be the only... The only thing yeah. that you could say that was a sort of heart in the heart in the mouth moment. Um, but I was on such a high that I, I think you know a game followed up against Ukraine. You wouldn't have had the same atmosphere. I think the players would have been prepared for it, but you wouldn't have had yeah, the same yeah. atmosphere. So I guess it is good to get away and then get back in that in that sense, isn't it? And there was a, a, di- a different crowd in Rome, a good English supporting crowd in Rome, but it was a different crowd who haven't had a chance to see. England play maybe because they're expats and stuff. So maybe it generates a type of atmosphere, like you say, that might have just been absent from Wembley because they've yeah. 
I'm not saying exactly the same people are going to every single game, but it just it affords an opportunity to a different group of fans to go in and make a bit of noise and and enjoy watching that team. And Ukraine, let's be honest, that centre half going off made a big difference yeah. to them. They couldn't defend basic things like crosses, and that isn't denigrating England's performance. You beat what's in front of you. That was a comprehensive uh, win, and it was it was really well executed, like you say. But I honestly think Sweden would have been a much more challenging test than Ukraine. I, I just don't think that was a that was worse than I expected Ukraine to be. But I didn't expect England to have any problems. Like you say, relaxed was the word, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It wasn't tense. And game managed as well. After 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 we scored, I thought it was really impressive that they were going to like come at us, and I thought we really were measured in our defence and got kept in shape and just let them mess about with the ball in areas of the pitch mm-hmm. that weren't that weren't that weren't concerning. And you know, I, don't, I definitely think that was the case. Um, well, here's another reason that the game management was good. Of course, getting out to a good lead, un- it allowed him to take off the booked midfielders. Yeah. And crucially, rest half of the yeah. team. Yeah, yeah. Again, D- Denmark have been out in Baku in a game that went to the wire because it was two-one in a sapping heat, long travel. England have been to Rome and coasted in first gear. Yeah. That is, you can't ask for better preparation. I, know. I mean, for... Declan Rice has played half a game, hasn't he? He's played fifty-five yeah. minutes or something. Yeah, and then it, you um... can't ask for more than that, from in my is. opinion. And no, I I agree, and it does make you wonder because I'm with you on Henderson now how good he was when he came on, but he's just, and that that's the interesting thing. I almost feel like Southgate feels like I'm not saying he should make that change so well every game, and I understand that, but I I just wonder if at the back of his mind somewhere, he's wondering if that would be a brave move or not, or whether he's or whether he's he's more likely to think hey, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a good half an hour from. Henderson now, and he can come on and add add energy to to tired, you know, to, to to a game that has a lot of tired legs. Denmark might tire as long as we're in the game. Half an hour in could be the time where you see he starts to make those changes again. And we've never seen mm. this is the modern game, isn't it? We never it's used to see now. we never used to see substitutions make this sort of impact before, where you would plan yeah. for something like that. It would be very much like pick your best eleven and they'll play it till the knackered. <laughs> um, or, we'll, or we'll we'll throw like a big striker on if we're getting beat and get the balls in the yeah, box, and that right. was kind of the extent of substitutions in the relatively recently, where it's quite um, it's quite alarming, that really, isn't it? That well, it's, a, the, it's the fifth sub as well, isn't it? There's so many changes you can make that you can afford. Say you lose, say you've got a plan. If you're one nil up after sixty minutes, you make the change that you were planning to make in that scenario, and you concede. You've still got so many other opportunities to adjust to the new sort of pattern that's emerged that you, it's actually more difficult to make a mistake. I think with a substitution or a tactical change, which is great. You've got the amount. I think in an international tournament as well, when you've got the depth in forward areas that England have, it's it's an absolute luxury. And it, you know what, if you if you think about the way like maybe people have felt oh, it's a bit conservative and stuff, I, I don't know. In some ways, it makes perfect sense because of the amount of subs you can make. Yeah, you only end up having to like do that if the game isn't going your way, or course, if it is, yeah. but you need to inject a bit of something different after an hour. Yeah, um, it's definitely the approach you seems to be taken. Where it's like you know, let's either way, let's be in this game. 60 minutes in we do have the quality on the pitch to to 
you know, break through in that time. It's not like you tell them not to create chances and not to score. Um, and we have scored early goals, haven't we? And you know, first half goals against Croatia and Czech Republic, didn't we? So um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you know that has happened. And then, like you say, but at a at a time, especially this far and this deep into the tournament, when people are starting to wear, you've got all these this embarrassment of riches on the bench, really, um, which gets us under the under the the team we think he'll pick. Um, that was tough one this time. well it is, it is because some people were predicting he would match Ukraine up and go to back three which I never thought he would do and, and me and Rory said we didn't think he would do that Denmark an interesting one isn't it because there's only been Germany he's got his he's, he's identified that he needs to do that for um, but Denmark have dangerous wing backs too so oh their wing backs have been superb whether it's mm-hmm. Daniel Vass at right wing back or Stieger Larsen. Both of them seem to have played really well. Larsen or Stieger, he has Stieger on his shirt. I don't know which one he predominantly goes by. His delivery looks really dangerous. Uh, Vass plays for Valencia and usually plays in midfield, according to the commentator on the last game. So he's, I mean, I know Valencia aren't the force they were like 20 years ago, but it's still a decent level of football. Myler on the other side, like we've talked about, he looks. He looks some player him. Mm-hmm. The thing their manager's got, which I think maybe one or two of the ones we've come up against so far haven't had, except I would say I think the Czech manager was pretty good actually in the tournament. But I think the Danish manager is a good adjuster. So if Southgate does match him up, it would be interesting to see whether their manager adjusted things quite quickly to counter that or whether they even think about changing things. I think you'll go with the back three probably their manager, because I, yeah. I don't see why you would break that up. But I think it's a tough one, isn't it? I, I think it is I, don't, I don't think we will. I think he'll go for the back and that if it starts becoming a problem, he could try and match it up with the players he's got on the pitch and adapt. Like Drop you've right just said back. That, yeah. yeah. So like you've just said, the Denmark manager did there. I don't think he wants to be in a position where you say, so he starts three at the back, Denmark make an early change and then he thinks, right, I don't have the personnel to change this now. It would be easier mm-hmm. to go the other way, wouldn't it? So it'd be easier to, to go for the back and then like you say, drop Rice into midfield and then drop one of the front three players back in a back in the midfield as well which is why it's one of the few reasons why I think he could start Phil Ford and mm. um, I think you know he's he's tried Ford and started there he's tried Saka for a couple of games I know Saka got injured but he explained his reasons for playing Sancho who did alright I think I thought he played um, well yeah, I enjoyed I his he, performance um, I just think he might want to keep you know Ford and might be just really, really rare on the go. Now he's such a talented player who can play mm. in that position and open up a defence. He's fit. He's had a couple of games rest. And, you know, that just sort of solidifies it for me in that if he has got it in his mind, right, we're going to have to match them up quite early, then Foden could quite comfortably just drop back into, mid- into midfield, I think. Well, and play there. What- wouldn't it be Mount who would just drop back, do you not think? Well, it depends on, well... Or who are you leaving? I don't think... I think the players... If he plays 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, uh, the back four will be the same. The two yeah. midfielders will be the same. Yeah. I think Mount and Sterling yeah. and Kane will play, yeah. which leaves one Ford, position. Yeah, like, so Mount will come back and then Ford will come back as well. So I see what you yeah. mean, like... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be like Kane and Sterling up, up front and then the rest of... Yeah. Sort of. Sort of like being able to drop back in the midfield, yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I could see that happening in the game. Yeah, definitely. I think the one advantage of going three at the back from the start, which probably wouldn't be my preference, would just be the pace of Kyle Walker um, in that central area when you've got some quite quick players in that, that um, Den- Denmark front three is mobile. It, uh, it will look to go in behind. Um, and I think if England centre-half pairing has a weakness, it's a lack of pace. Uh, that's the yeah. only thing I would... I would Walker, yeah, think. and Walker is an interesting one because I, I think he'll play for that reason again for, for his pace. Absolutely. To, to cut out that threat. I would say, if I'm being hypercritical, Walker's possibly the one player out of the starters who I, I'm not sure he's played to his full potential. I think mm. I, certainly against Ukraine, I didn't think he was. I didn't think he had his best game. He made um, the one mistake, didn't he? Did, 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 did. I was fuming yeah. at the time because it was proper complacency, wasn't it? It was um, awful, yeah. It was just it was it was just like this is a training game and you just you just can't do it. We've seen over the years England get punished. I mean, you know that Iceland game. You never forget about that, will you? It was just two absolute moments of just switching off and and just compl- utter complacency, wasn't it? And that has not come through at all. I'm being hypercritical because there was one one moment within the whole tournament where there's been a sign <laughs> of that. Do you know what I mean? So. Um, but it was just I mean, a little reminder. Big f- Pickford as well with that stupid frigging fresh air kick that yeah. he did. Um, and I, again, I just thought he tried to sort of like side volley it, didn't he? And you just thought, if that was against Germany, would have you, you done that? Yeah. Would have you yeah. done that? Or would have you just put that in a touch? Do you know what I mean? And mm. would have you just dealt with it? So they were, they were the two moments. But um, we'll just have a little break now and we'll come back and we'll just do ten, five, ten minutes on Sunderland. I think, you know, how... how I know we both kind of said we're quietly confident, but we wouldn't be surprised um, <laughs> if if Denmark were to win, which is us sitting on the fence a little bit. So let's. Well, what's your prediction? It. I was going to say, what's your prediction? I think we'll win, but I think it'll be a tense game. I think it'll be two-one. I'm going to say it'll be nil-nil. Go to extra time, and England win it one-nil in extra time. That's going to be my guess. It won't be that. It'll be a three-two thriller now. So I'm I'm positively jinxing it. <laughs> I remember when we, we played, just to finish, when we played them in the night, you know, we played them in 2002, didn't we, in the second round after the group stage. And they had, yeah, knocked, yeah. they had knocked France out of the group. Them and Senegal finished top two in the group with France, uh, who, right. were obviously, who were obviously world and European champions at the time. Um, and Denmark mm. destroyed France. I think they beat them 3-0 or 3-1. Um, and a lot of people were tipping Denmark beat England. They just didn't turn up that day. I was watching that in a pub and... Uh, Rio Fernand scored, and it was a mistake by Tommy Sorensen for the first goal. And the uh, uh, whole pub, the Chester's pub, the whole pub started singing Tommy Sorensen after that. <laughs> well, um, I think that uh, on a last note on Denmark, I suppose, is a danger of thinking that this international minnow, they've won this tournament and England yeah. never have. They had a great team in, I know this is a long time ago, but they had a great team a in bit, 86. That was a bit like Greece in 2004, though. It was very... Well, their yeah. their great teams didn't win anything in '86, yeah. and they had a good team in '98 that yeah. obviously didn't win anything. Yeah. But they have consistently produced a good team, sort yeah. of every generation. So this is their generation. They'll be looking at this, thinking we've got a good chance of winning this tournament. We've got a, a seemingly a good manager, he's charismatic, tactically sound. England, likewise, though, have got to look at this and think you will not get a better chance to get to a final. Not because that's not denigrating Denmark. So I think Denmark were a bad team. I just think the tournament's wide open in a way it might never be again because the teams that look like they're in transition now, Germany, Spain, they're going to come back stronger. 
Do you think, I think France will have another run with that team? The Wise Men Say podcast is brought to you in association with From the Terraces. For a 10% discount, enter the code WMS10 at the checkout stage. While you do that, check out the From the Terraces podcast, presented by Rory Fallow and Matthew Keeling. For more information, search for From the Terraces on social media. Welcome back to the Wise Men Say podcast. If you are still listening, that means that you're going to put yourself through us talking about Sunderland and you've moved away from the from the England stuff. Um, good timing as well, Craig, and that there's been a couple of things break, haven't there? It has. We've just had a look there and Keith Downey's um, <clears throat> tweeted to say Charlie Wake's in Wigan for a medical and he's fought, apparently the fought off championship interest in the striker. We're in advanced talks with Alex Pritchard who once cost £11 million allegedly uh, when he went to Huddersfield. Mm-hmm. And apparently Birmingham are also interested in for him, interested in him. Sorry, so that's a championship club. So most surprising of all, I think, is Chris Maguire is undergoing a medical at Lincoln. That is, and surprising. I wonder what that says. That is surprising because he doesn't seem to be. I was going to say Michael Appleton played to me, but did he play for Appleton at Oxford? Don't Good know. Question. It's Not too, sure. It's too. It's too short notice for me to do the research and find. I know, because I know they were both at Oxford, but I don't know if they were there together. So, um, you know, on the face of it, he doesn't. He doesn't seem like a kind of player would have fit in the Lincoln's team. That is an interesting one, but I guess you know the quality that he's got. Um, Charlie White, not a massive surprise. I think we were all kind of expecting what I guess is a surprise that it's another Championship club and Wigan are showing some intent on there. I know Ben Amos has gone there yeah. as well. Who I was very impressed with last year. Um, this is the kind of intense Sunderland fans expected. I think it's fair to say. Isn't it? Well, even just in sheer quantity of signings for Wigan, like you say, they look like they're assembling a squad that could have a goal at getting promoted. Now, Max Power wasn't everyone's cup of tea at Sunderland, but he's won promotion with Wigan twice, and he's gone back there. White scored over 30 goals for us last season. He's going to sign for them. Now, personally, I wouldn't offer a 28-year-old striker who had one good season for the club a four-year deal on increased money. But <laughs> there is a caveat, which is you would have expected us to have had a plan to move these players on, let them go and replace with commensurate talent. So far, we haven't done that. In fact, Lee Johnson has come out and said part of the reason we signed Ross Stewart was in case Charlie White left. Now, no offence to Ross Stewart, but he's a complete unknown. I'm not buying that at all. I'm, I'm just not buying that at all. And that that is a concern and comment to me. But exactly, that's why I bring it up. That's why I bring it up. You're going to replace your 30 goal a season striker with somebody who who you'd already brought in. And I don't want to talk about links because unless it's like that Alex Pritchard one, where there's more than one person suggesting he's actually in the region for talks, people like Vokes, people like Likai or Lichai, however you pronounce it, we'll wait and see. I'm not going to comment on them. Um, But... The fact of the matter is we haven't really had a link to another striker. We've had Lee Johnson say that about Ross uh, Stewart, and he's also kind of... I, I think you can take his comments about Will Grigg with a pinch of salt, but he did play in our Open friendly. He started the game, and he has said he's a player that they like, but he doesn't know if he'll be here when the season starts. Well, we've got less than five weeks until the start of the season. We've signed nobody, really, for the first team, apart from that goalkeeper, which, it's been the slow. It's been the slowest. We've had some terrible windows, and this has been the slowest I can I can, I can think of. Oh, it's this is a lot worse than 
in terms of slowness, not in terms of we don't know what the end product of the window is going to be, but in terms of slowness, it's a lot yeah. worse than when everyone was panicking when we come down from the championship and we had no squad uh, under Jack Ross. Because when you look back on it, we did have a squad. We had players like Lee Catamore, Brian Oviedo. We had Josh Madger, who eventually came through, and Sean Lyndon Gooch. Like, quality players for that level. And apart from Aidan McGeady, most of those players have left now. And we don't have any numbers. There was comments from uh, Lee Johnson that sounded like they would potentially be in, you know, open to selling Elliot Embleton as well. Now, he's not been someone I've been hugely enamoured with, but he's young. He's done well at a promote a team that were a promotion rival last season. They just we just need to see promotion rivals. <laughs> well, exactly correct. Yeah, sorry, they did go up, didn't they? So we need to see a semblance of a plan here. Now, Alex Pritchard. He did cost a lot of money not long ago, and he did do quite well. I remember seeing him play and thinking he looked lively, but he didn't play at all last season for Huddersfield. Why is that? Season before that, he played 17 times, didn't score any goals as an attacking midfielder, not necessarily a great sign. I don't know. There's just, there's just not a lot happening, is well, there? Not, that in not, of itself not, is a worry. Know, they're not reflective of the new approach that they've, they've been proactively telling everybody that... The, taken mm. and you know we don't know like you said they could have 10 signings lined up correct and, and, they, and they all come off on Friday or something you know what I mean like we, do, we, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes and uh, not really interested in, in all that to be honest um, but I think you know the, the, when they've been proactively telling us as a fan base you no, know, we're doing it this way now and we're going to get it right and we're doing it this way I think you can't you can excuse or you can understand fans being a bit concerned when the players you're linked with the players who have been around for years anyway and don't seem to be a break away from every other approach we've ever taken in the transfer market. Um, it doesn't help when we can, people like Wigan are making loads of signings. And I, I guess we've been criticised before for just trying to build a short-term team to get us out of this division, which is what you could possibly say about Wigan, where we, we, we're saying we're trying to look more long-term now. But there's a balance, isn't there? Because you can't. If we're just going to bring in players for the future, we're going to get absolutely nowhere near promotion this season if they just add to the squad that we've got now. If we're well, just going essential. And well, we're looking at the players that we are being linked with. If we just use Pritchard as the most tangible example, he's 28 years old. He's not one for the future. There's loads of data on Alex Pritchard. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. And so Levi the, and Vaux and these other people we're being linked with. It does that like it's hard because, like you say, there could be a bunch of players that we don't we didn't know about Pritchard until today, and suddenly it looks like there's a decent chance he might sign. And I, you know, I can only base on what I've seen, which was granted not very recently. And he did look a decent enough player, and maybe for free, you're adding something where you know, if Maguire's left, and Maguire was a player who would he'd take his time on the ball where someone like Pritchard always struck me as quite an energetic player who would who would run at people. And that does fit with the kind of way I think Lee Johnson wants his team to set up. But we're also, you know, in virtually every other position except attacking midfield, we're short. We've got no fullbacks at all because Hume is contracts out. We've signed Luke 09 to a new, a new deal, but surely now is the time to be playing 09 in midfield. If not now, when? He signed a three-year deal, you can't be signing him to a three-year deal as a right-back. You're on mute, Steve. You're on mute. That's great, Nat. That's uh, the first time. That's the first, I've managed to get through all these podcasts without that. <laughs> I'll take that out. <laughs> that must have been part of the um, the deal to keep him here, surely. 
I don't know how much you'd interest so. he's had, but you'd, you'd think he must be saying. And, you know, it, 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 that, I, mean, I am glad he signed on. It is a good signing, but it's not... You're not going to get excited about it because he was already here. Exactly. <laughs> you're just standing still with yeah. a squad that hasn't got promoted in three years. And, like, again, someone like Pritchard, you look at that record and, you know what, it just makes you think of Aidan O'Brien. Like, oh, stop it. Right. Stop it. Right. Like, uh, let's talk we'll about see. England we'll again. See. We'll, we'll talk see. about we'll England see. again. Uh, right. No. Well, we, we, not... we, it's not panic state. Let's be honest. No, it shouldn't no, be panic no, stages. No, but definitely not. But at the same time, we need to see movement and we need to see it fast because the season is almost upon us. The manager needs time to work with these players. That isn't being hysterical. That's what yeah. we've said every summer. We need yeah. it in place so that we're ready to go in the first game and we're playing Wigan, who we're going to have two of our former players who would love to prove a point against us. Yeah. I just think we, you know, we spotted Danny Collins be- before Wales played. So what was that, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago? And we were saying, mm-hmm. then should we be concerned because they've been telling us they've been an up player since January and nothing's happened since. So, um, yeah, let's... let's well, like players this. now, players are out of contract, Steve. July was the, you know, end of June. That So there was obviously ones who'd been released like Power who moved on. So there were still opportunities to sign players then. We didn't sign anyone. Now July's here. Players are out of contract, like you know, Maguire's moving, White, people like that. We've not seen the movement I think we would have expected within the first six, seven days. But even if we're signed Pritchard today, I still think we're behind the curve when you look at the, yeah. the deals of the clubs are doing. I agree. You can only hope there's multiple ones ready there. All to go. Fingers we're crossed. Gonna, we're not going to panic and speculate because we look like idiots. Definitely if that, not. If that, if that is the case. Yeah. But um, I think it's definitely fair to, to sort of look and say, come on, get a, get, get get a, a finger out. Yeah. It's either yeah. a good thing or a bad thing because it means they've absolutely got no idea what they're doing and they haven't <laughs> got all this strategy and, and, and money that perhaps they've hinted on that they have. Or it's the opposite of that and they've just been really calm and measured and controlled and we're going to say lots of stuff just drops on me. So kind of have a horrible feeling which is what, which one it might be, but we'll see. We'll see. Oh, well. And, um, oh, well. Good luck to England then. And hopefully we've got, I mean, we might come back and discuss it even if they do go out, but hopefully we've got another podcast yet and we can stretch this good feeling out and, um, yeah. and not concern ourselves with Sunderland too much. So as always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah.